Hello everyone and welcome back to Inside Art Scroll, where the books you read and the people who write them come to life. Today I am joined by two special brothers, Avi Fishoff and Dovi Fishoff, in honor of the release of a brand new book about their amazing father, Rebeni Fishoff. Thank you, Avi. Thank you, Dovi. It's an honor to sit with you. Thank you. And we are very excited here in Art Scroll Land with the release of this new book about your father. I know that this is really uh, many years in the making. Um, it's what, what's unique about it, which I want to get into first. First of all, kudos to the author, Rabbi Saul Besser, yeah. who's a, a master at his craft and, and, and uh, took your father's story and brought it to life in such a beautiful way. Um, but what's unique about it is that it's written, for the most part, as a memoir uh, in, in first person, Mm-hmm. Um, t- talk about that evolution and how that happened and why the book evolved that way. Well, my father always wanted to memorialize his life, which was very, very unique as a survivor from, from Lodge, from Poland, traveling through Russia to get to Shanghai and then settling in America, really a lone survivor and built his family and his, his friends and his whole social life totally on his own. He wanted to convey that to the next generation. He always felt, and he has spoken about it many times in speeches, about how he felt that the reason that he survived was to teach the gen- next generation to kind of be a bridge for the next generation about what pre-war Poland and pre-war Europe was all about. And he felt that that was one of his missions in life. So he wanted to convey that, and in addition to that, to give over his experiences in life and in business to his children and primarily to his children and his grandchildren, for them to know what he was about, what he felt was important, and what he had learned from his, from his family, from his ancestry. So am, am I understanding correctly that when the book was originally commissioned to be written, it was really written for the family? Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally, for the children, the grandchildren, kind of a, leg, a legacy book. Yes, yeah. And what, what, at what point did you decide, you know what, this... This story has so many lessons and so many uh, um, compelling. There are so many compelling reasons to share with the wider public. Well, at what point did you decide that that was the case? Well, my father was Kanai Nahara. He wasn't a young man, but he was very, very healthy. He was totally with it, physically, mentally, until the day he got sick, which was in 2016, December 2016. He just one morning he had internal bleeding and he didn't wake up. But until that point, he was vibrant, he was, he was well, and he was working on the book himself for, for quite a few years with Shirley. Mm-hmm. And he loved Shirley, and I think the feeling was very mutual. So I think the book goes beyond, well beyond the, you know, just the verbal interchange between the two, but there was a, there was a lot of emotion in the book, the way my father wrote it, the way Shirley wrote it, the way he conveyed it. But my father was really just gearing it for the family, and he mm-hmm. told a lot of private stories, inside the book that even some of them we had to we had to take out eventually but uh, you know when he got sick we started thinking about maybe that's this is the time for other people to get involved and to mm-hmm. see how other people's experiences and perspectives corroborated what my father stood for and what was important to him and the way his, his lessons his life's lessons actually he conveyed that to other people and he and he practiced very much what he preached I, I think that uh, above all, you know, the, it says it's a story of dignity, generosity, wisdom, and warmth. Well, well, more than anything, actually, that I found, and I'm wondering how this uh, impacted you as children, um, was his humility. 
it was a person who who seemed to be able to relate to every person, no matter who they were, from young to old, from prominent to, to not so prominent. He had that 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 endearing characteristic of humility. Um, what, what did you see at home? Because that, that, at least in a, on a public persona, we, we saw that humility. Um, what did you see at home, Rabavi? So I think he was always shocked that he was important. And, you know, he came here without anything, without anyone. And he did the right things, and Hashem benched him, and he had a lot of chen, and he was... He had a lot of midas that normal people don't have, which I hope we'll get into. He really had like a, a whole different way of looking at things. I didn't even realize it till much later in my life that things that we take for granted, mm-hmm. that we would never do or never think of, that other people do and think. They didn't have a role model. So he really had a really high road, just internal way of, of dealing with everything. Can you give a practical example of that? What's an example of something oh, that so many of those that he did that was so different than than the the Hamaynam? First of all, he, he just genuinely liked people. Mm-hmm. So he was interested in he didn't have anything like, oh he's younger than me, he's older than me. He's, he just liked people. And um, he was very trustworthy. Very trustworthy. Um, he always, he really didn't put himself before any situation, so he really didn't have an agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very, very clear-minded. That's why so many people trusted him in so many right. issues and making peace between families and, and all of that. And um, many, many, many stories about that uh, that are in the book, and it's just endless. Even after the book came out, so many people are texting us so many more and more and more stories. Right. But it comes to that humility, really, I, th- I think, my personal belief is he couldn't believe that a little kid from Poland, you know, could end up being in a new world with a new language and a new culture, could end up being really in, in that, in the 60s and 70s, Klaal Yisrael was much smaller, and right. he was really very prominent. And that's why every time that he was, he was you know, asked to speak or asked to do, he always said, me? Moi? 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 Couldn't believe that couldn't. somebody gave him an honor of something uh-huh. or asked his advice. He was really something shocked. important and very important right. issues in Klal Yisrael. And also you see, you see his tremendous positivity. He, he tremendous. was an extremely positive person throughout the book. And, I, yes. and I've seen videos of him. He was always talking about the future and what Klal Yisrael could do and, and what we're going to accomplish. He wasn't wallowing in the past which he really lived through what, what we would consider the, the worst period for Kaiser in the last century. And he lived through it as a child. And he came over... I think there are two elements to what you're saying, really. First of all, in terms of his history, he didn't focus on the past so much. Right. He always had it in mind, but his focus was the future. And right. even in terms of day-to-day life, in business and, and in other things, in Askanis, whatever it was, everything was positive. Everything had a positive spin on it. And we... I, we, I was like to work with him for 10 years in the office together, day by day. And no matter what happened in business, we, he would always see the silver lining. We learned this lesson, and we got this, and we benefited this way. He just had an incredible positive attitude about everything that was going on in his life. Ivduas Hashem Simcha, that was his motto that he got when he got the bracha from the Emreyemes, as you can see mm-hmm. in the book, when he was just gezegening with the, with the Emreyemes in Poland. And he, he lived that way throughout his life. Right, everything right. was... A positive spin on things. Yeah, I think beyond anything else in the book, I think just that alone, if people take that 
to learn from Rabbeinu Fishov is that, that ability to, first of all, to carry on, despite whatever has happened in the past. Incredible. Um, and to do so with such an ayin toiva, and, and like you said, a love of people, which is not so simple. No. Not so simple. People don't always love people. It's, you know? It, it's, it's, loved it's, everybody. Yeah, it's, even, it's, it, it's even deeper than that. It's that, you know, we think that you'll be nice to people, they'll be nice to you, and everything will be fine. Like a quid pro quo, right. Right, and as long as you're nice, it's good. But unfortunately, the world is not like that. And while he was really nice to everybody, there were people who really hurt him very badly along the years. Um, friends of his and, and people close to him who did really bad stuff to him. And that's where the, the angel part really popped mm-hmm. out, where we couldn't believe how he would... How do you even explain it? The way he reacted to those people was so dramatic, many of the people don't even realize that he had a tine on them, uh-huh. that, they, that they did anything wrong to him, and they feel they're close friends with him, and we know the truth from the inside. We knew what happened, and we knew how he felt, but he was so positive in his, in his relationship with them and so warm to them right. that they, they totally either forgot what they did or ignored what they did or felt that he didn't care. He just, he just loved everybody. He it just was couldn't incredible. help himself. It was incredible. And people really, like, stabbed him in the back, and then he mm-hmm. would see them, and we would be like, you know, oh, my gosh, and he would just go over and give a big hug, and it's like he had this kind of, uh, I, I don't even know what to call it, but you don't get the reputation that he had if you, if you don't also deal not just being good to everybody, but also responding to people who are not good to you. Right in this way, which was lamala midar chateva. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody else has ever seen anything like it. Well, just to add to he, that, he, yeah. could, he had many opportunities. Unfortunately, they could involve, get involved going to Din Torahs, going involved, getting right. involved in litigation. He put all that aside. He said, that's not where I want to spend my time and my energy on the past. Whatever it is, it is. I want to focus on the, on the future. And, and not worry about what happened in the past. He just I was avoided ask you, that where, where totally. do you think he got that? Where did he get that from? What, who was his primary role model who, who he modeled his, his personal character after that it was so sterling? What would you say? What was so unique about him is that everybody that could have been a role model really was, was killed in the Holocaust, and he was really alone. He was a young right. boy. He was an Ud Mutsum At 16, at 16 yeah. 17 years old. He was already totally that, alone. That's what makes this so, more, so much more astounding. Right. He, he was a role model. Yeah, he would you say he was self-made in that, in that sense? Just a self-made man? I guess Hashem blessed him to have a certain way of life. I don't, I don't, don't know anybody that he got this, this from. And he said he, a very interesting thing. Yeah. Somebody in Eretz Yisrael told me his son was, was involved in the Knesset. And, and he, when my father came to the room, there was like some kind of gathering. A Gera, a Gera gathering, and obviously my father was, you know, one of the prominent Hasidim in Gera, and he comes into the room and he sits in the back, you know, as if they're not going to tell him, you know, sit in the front. To him, he was comfortable in the back, and the fellow told me, and I can't remember his name right now, the fellow told me, I told my son that, you know, you're going to be a Chaber Knesset. Look at how Mr. Fishov deals with people. Look at how he conducts himself. Such an important person. Don't lose focus of who you, where you come from and who you were. You have to, don't think that you're important. You want to learn from somebody, Mr. Fishoff is your role model. Mm-hmm. And then he mentioned about Tchunas HaNefesh, and that your father was a person that every good Tchunas HaNefesh in a person was rolled up into your father. Mm-hmm. Every, every good, just natural Tchuna that, that a person could have was Beautiful. rolled up into your father. I remember his expression like that. Yeah, of, of yeah, very special. Yeah. The Amshin Rebbe, his son-in-law, called me to tell me that he 
needed to collect money for something new. And he said, we're starting off now to collect money, which is a difficult process for anybody. You wait online. In those days, you would knock on the door in the office and sit, and people nice to you, not nice to you, whatever. He said, the first person we're going to go is to Benny Fishoff. He says, because he's beteva agita. His nature is good, and he uh -huh. says, and I, I'm talking about from Shanghai, before he was anybody, and before he had any money. Mm -hmm. He says, beteva agita, so let's start with him, we'll have a good feeling. Well. And my father would walk with people who were 30, 40, 50 years younger than him and, and be buddy-buddy be with them. And we saw this everywhere, but especially in Gare. I mean, my youngest, my youngest memories growing up, it was like, it was just incredible how many people loved him and came over to him. And mm -hmm. there was no difference, someone his age, someone 10 years, 20, 30, 40 years younger than him. And he would sit and talk to them, and so many of them considered themselves his friend. I'll tell you a good story about yeah. that. My wife has a cousin from, from, from England, from London, came over to me after the Petiro. Maybe he was still sick. And he was in Gare with my father. He was talking to my father. He's today maybe 35 years old. As I said, five years ago, at least. He was 30 years old. He was talking to my father in Gare. And somebody calls my father over that it's time you have to go into some kind of meeting, whatever. And my father says to the person who called me, says, excuse me, I'm talking to my friend. I get emotional thinking about it. The young man says, he called me his friend. It's not like he said, I'm, I'm busy, I'm talking right. to someone. Right. The fact that he called him his friend mm -hmm. just meant so much to that young man. Wow. And he had that ability with so many different people. It's so moving. But I, to add on what you, what you were saying about the Knesset member, I think we could all take a lesson from his life as well regarding success. Very often people think that in order to get places in business, in Askanis, Whatever it is, even for great things in Avodah Sakaidish, you know, sometimes you have to push your way around, you know, and then be a little aggressive. Sometimes, you know, you step on people if you have to, but that's just, the, you know, that's the path to success. And you, your father showed us that totally not the, totally not the case. Totally opposite. The exact opposite. Zewa you know, be machniyat to everyone. Exactly. He acquired the ultimate time. And, and even financially, that he, you know, people want to do business with someone like him, and the sharks or the people who are tough. Everybody knows who they are, mm -hmm. so they they gain in the short term, but right. in the long term, they're no beneficial. And, and I'll add one other thing: that. very often, people who are viewed as nice and soft and humble are people who are not so involved. And it's easy to stay right. a nice person when you're not so involved because mm -hmm. you don't have to do uncomfortable things. But like you, one of you alluded to before about him getting involved in mediating. People who were oh, fighting yeah. cats and dogs, and your father, the book describes how he got involved. He was able to bring people together, Bishalim, when they hadn't spoken were you in, in so long. Were you, were you at the CES show? Yeah, I was there. Which one? The, there were two people who were fighting over millions and millions of dollars, and he knew both of them. And they already spent like a half a million each on lawyers. And oh. we're talking about <clears throat> 30, 30 years ago. Wow. So that's like at least. Yeah, so it's like spending $10 million now on lawyers, right? And they were at each other's throat. They were really, really fighting. And um, we went to the CES show together. I saw it happen. I was, walk I was just walking with him. And he pulled over the one guy, and he just, like, you know, holds him like this, and he's, like, walking with him, and he's like, eh, this, or whatever. And so what do you want? What do you this, whatever? And he said, okay. Then he went over to the other guy, right? And he sat with him, and he says, eh, fighting, you know, you, what, do you, what is it you want? What do you think you're going to get? It's going to cost so much in lawyers. It's not. 
And then, like, within an hour, they were both sitting at a table outside, at the same table, just the two of them and my father. My father pulled out a napkin, took out a pen, and on the napkin wrote up the agreement that they both signed. And that was one of the easier cases. Mm-hmm. I would say my father was relentless in helping people. Relentless. Mm-hmm. We have many stories. You know the story. Of, uh, we were traveling. There are many stories. We, I went with, once with my father to a Sony convention in Hawaii. And in those days, he didn't fly directly to Hawaii from New York. We stopped in Chicago and L.A. Every stop, he went into the phone booth and called the people that he was working on. In mm-hmm. Chicago, then in L.A. And then half the time in Hawaii, he spent, instead of spending on business, he spent on the phone with this, with this issue, and he eventually solved it. It took him over a year, and, and emotional, it was an emotional disagreement uh, in a family, and he just, he just got it done, and he was never satisfied. He said, the only way I'm happy is if, at the end of the day, both sides send me flowers. Then I know I did a good mm-hmm. job. And he was very, very successful at that. Uh-huh. I spoke to a mediator, and he told me, he said, listen, when I mediate, I want to make sure that each one is equally unhappy. <laughs> That's a good mediation. Cause you get, have, uh-huh, with right. my father, somehow, each side ended up happy. happy. Right. I was in the office when, um, when Shmuel Kamenetsky, he came in, and him and, and Daddy were, were mediating about a shul in South America, that there was some fight over the shul, and it was pretty intense, and they picked my father, and Shmuel was there, and Shmuel was, like, enjoying the way, the way Daddy was, like, dealing with it. It's uh-huh. so calm, you know, having, let's have a pastrami sandwich, let's, let's sit down. And he, he was would, like Shlomo HaMelech when it came to these It was things. unbelievable. He knew what to say to each person to make mm-hmm. them feel better about their tightness, wow. how to take away their tightness. And sometimes it was just a matter of words. Like, I, I remember talking to my father once, and he, he told me what he told this guy. And, this, that, and I said... He bought that? Like he, <laughs> you expressed it in a different way. He was looking for, you know, it was a divorce case, and he wanted the ring, and he wanted the money. They were exchanging things. And my father said what he needed to hear mm-hmm. in order to feel better, that somebody understands him, and that he, in a way, is getting what he needs. And he made it work. One time there was a, there was a dispute, and our people came to our office, and there were lawyers inside, and my father was working as an arbitrator mediator. And the lawyer walks out of the office. He comes to my desk, and he says... I don't know how your father takes this. I can't take it. I'm getting paid for this, and I can't take it anymore. I don't know how he does it. There were Alev. That's what it was. It came, he was respected it came from a real by place, people. Right? People, you know, they felt comfortable with him because they knew that, what he, that he meant the MS. Mm-hmm. He was just trying to help them. He wasn't doing it for the money. He wasn't looking for litigation. And, he, and they respected his opinion about what's right and what's not he right. He was right. very good at, at picking up, in a, even in a huge battle, at what the, what the nakuda of this person really cares about. And sometimes it was money, and sometimes it was really not money, and sometimes they felt whatever it was. So he was able to, to, give, to give each person what they really needed mm-hmm. and find a way to make that work right. in a way that, that many professionals and other people couldn't do. That's why they ended up by him, which was interesting. It's not like now where a person decides to be an arbitrator and you have a business card. He wasn't officially anything. Right. He wasn't trained in this, he right? He wasn't trained, and he, he didn't <laughs> advertise, and he didn't... Just people ended up knowing that, that if there's someone to go to who will listen to you right. and will care about you and will work for you for free, that was the person to go to. And it wasn't just regular people. I must say, mm-hmm. you know, Ramon Shashara, as we, as we bring in the book, Ramon Shashara called my father the Malach HaShalom. Whenever he had a difficult case, he would summon my father to help with certain Chavrei uh, Knesset or Moyatzis Gedolei Atari members, whatever issue he had, 
extremely sensitive and delicate and it had to be handled just the right way, he knew he'd call my father in. And not only just because my father was available, I was once with my father on a trip, my brother-in-law got married in Switzerland, where Moshe Shara called my father from Eretz Yisrael and said, I need you here. My father took off on the vacation, my mother was, was there, she was there with, with us, he left for two days and he solved the problem among the Chavrei Knesset in Eretz Yisrael. He was just brilliant at this. I was going to say that mo, you know most disputes at the end of the day have to do more about ego than anything else, but uh, but Very because often. your father had no ego basically, because it was never about himself. Right. You read story after story; it's never about himself. He didn't care about his own. Even COVID. when he it didn't was with him, even when yeah. when when he was the Baldover, he right. still. I mean, there wasn't. It was really not about himself. No, about. I think it's wor- it was worse than he was about Baldover. Yeah. We would see, in the, we would look in the office. Yeah. Somebody would come for help to my father's office, and they weren't always the most upstanding people, you know, in business, and not right. not necessarily totally honest or, or reliable. But they would talk to my father, and I literally could see his face transforming to become that person that needs the help. Hmm. He went from you know trying to help somebody else to trying to help himself. Yeah. He felt so much for the other person's problem that he put his own interests aside, and really sometimes it was detrimental to the business, but that person had to be helped. Now, I saw his face change. It was just incredible to watch. And we walked out of there, and like I said, oh no, here we go again. <laughs> like, he was just unstoppable in trying to help people. He just yeah, loved people. For sure, that a lot of times people would be like, okay, so this person has a problem. And like the Ovi's saying, and, and there's one story, I can't really give too many details, you, you could write a book on just the story. <laughs> there are many stories that we can't give a lot of details. <laughs> Which, you know, there was, a, there was a family that, was, that stole a lot of money from a bank, and they were going to go to jail, and they were going to lose their money, and my father was very close to the bank, so the banker came into my father and said, you know, you know this and this person, and he was very close to this person. And they came to my father to try to settle it. Mm-hmm. So, and my father settled it that for much less money and mm-hmm. no, no uh, jail time and no, you know, and, they, and then they, they didn't have the cash. So he himself, my father, decided money. that he will raise the money. He didn't have the money. He oh. borrowed money at no, 10. No, He borrowed at 10%. He, but he laid it out. He laid it yeah, out. He, he borrowed for money. himself money. And this 10%. was Friday afternoon. Now you settled at the bank. I remember yeah. him coming back to the office. Yeah. It was time to go home for Shabbos ready. And I said to my father, I said, you, you did an amazing thing for this person. You helped him so much. You, you relieved him of all his obligations. But he has a lot of friends. Why did you have to give him all the money yourself? Mm-hmm. So he said, I wanted the mitzvah for myself. And it was a lot of money. And it was wow. an old friend. It was just incredible. The attitude was not, I saved him, like, let's, let's get together the money. Right. I want to do it myself. After you left, so I was there alone in the office, and, and it was really one of the few times that he was like in this type of mode, and he had his hands like on the desk like this. I never saw him like that, right? He was like this, and he said, imagine what a schuss I have. He said, look at this family. They have children. They have grandchildren. They have kids learning in Kyle. They have a very chashava part of their family, Rosh Hashivas and whatever, and they, they were going to go to jail, they were going to face you know, jail time, literally, and lose all their money and have nothing. He said, what a schus that I have now going into Shabbos, that I was able to make the deal and give them the money. This was probably the happiest moment of his life, someone oh. who wants to give. Wow. This, he couldn't imagine of anything more, more 
to feel good for himself, and he said, now they can go into Shabbos Ruyig calmly <laughs> because their whole family is saved. They're going to be able to keep their business, which was going to be destroyed. They, they were giving the bank much less than what they owed, mm-hmm. which didn't make any sense. All because my father knew the, 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 the right person. He, and, I, and he said, and I was the one to come up with the money, and he didn't have it. He borrowed it at 10% interest. It's wild. It's really... It's unheard of. It's really unnecessary. Of. <laughs> no, but the, but the money sense. thing is, is not something that everybody can do. Right. But the Ahava and, the, and sure. the, the, the goodwill that he had from people in wanting to help them and, and, and trying to help should them... Should we say the end of the story? That's, no, we shouldn't. Can't say the end of the <laughs> we story. Shouldn't. But it was but very sad and It was tragic. an incredible story. But, but as but, your father was doing these things, he, he, was, he was the consummate vatron. He was mavater to everyone. Yeah, um, I'm curious, what was the relationship like between your father and your mother at home? Were you, were you, what did you observe in terms of your mother being there for your father? You know, so in, she in passed his away when I was, uh, she got sick when I was 16 and uh, passed away when I was 18. Um, well, my mother, yeah, growing up, maybe a little before Avi's time, my father used to travel a tremendous amount. And in those days, traveling to Japan, he was away four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks at a time. No cell phone. No wow. cell phone. No because he had to go. It took almost a week to get there. And he did right. a lot of business in the Far East. He had a factory there at one time. He was developing and manufacturing electronics. But he worked with Sony and Panasonic. In those, na- in those days, they were, they were big names. Today, it's like Apple and Samsung today, I guess. Um, but he was away for weeks at a time in the Far East and in South America. So the, the burden really was very much on my mother. She was very much an Azer Konegdai. Mm-hmm. But when my father was home. After the office, very often he was in a Aguda meeting, he came home late for dinner because he had, to, he had to be at the Aguda meetings. But he worked all the time building his business, Sundays and uh, whenever, every... He was a real... He, he was a very busy person. To give the time, I was always marveling at the fact that he would go to an Aguda meeting 6 o'clock in the afternoon, 6, 7 o'clock, and come home 9 o'clock at night because he, he was really... Uh, he was a very hard worker. He mm-hmm. spent a lot of time out of the house. But when he was home... He was very consistent. I have a memory in my mind when I was maybe 11 years old. I remember I, I was going to yeshiva to daven every day. And one day my mother wakes up and I, w- I woke up early and she sees me at the back door leaving now. Where are you going? I said, I'm going to shul. Because my father's not in town now. He's not able to go to shul. So I want to take his place. Because he was extremely consistent. I think one of his most, most important qualities in his life was his consistency and dedication to doing something. From the day he started Dafyoni, which was uh, somewhere, I think, in the early 80s, maybe late 70s, mm-hmm. that he started learning Dafyoni. See, he was in Miami. He had a good friend, Chaim Hertz, who said, you know, I'm going to learn the Daf. Why don't you join me? From that day, he did not miss a Daf until my mother's Petira. And he wrote down during the Shiva, not allowed to learn. He had to skip these, mm-hmm. these few blood. That's right. how consistent he, wow. he was. When he did something, he was totally in control. The discipline that he had... He had to wake up every morning. He woke up, you know, with, with, with the right schedule. Everything was exactly according to schedule. I think also that he was really always in a good mood. Like if, you, if you're working very hard and you come to an Aguda meeting or something like that, whatever you're involved with, a shul meeting or any kind of function or helping people, you would feel like, you know, tired and right. run, run down. And, yeah. and then if someone's hacking you a Chinik and right. not making sense, you'd be like, you know, you get nervous. Sure. I never saw him get nervous with anybody or be short-tempered ever. 
and he was he brought to the table just a good vibe. Yeah, Algarve. I think he was he was the life of the party in most places. Our house was uh, growing up. It was the center of gravity in Forest Hills. Everybody came over. We would sing and we would schmooze with people mm -hmm. all the time. It took a, the shul was around the corner from my house. It would take about twenty five minutes to get home because he was he had to stop to enjoying speak to uh, everybody's schmoozing with him. All his friends. He Walking had a very home, good I, I, most of my life we always walked home together. I don't know today. I don't know if kids would do that. Yeah, we used to walk home. <laughs> but I remember like millions of times as you know coming home as I was growing up I kept on saying walk and talk walk and talk <laughs> somehow whenever they would start to talking they, they would, would stop, stop stay in the corner for <laughs> 10 minutes and I would be you like, were we're kid. freezing we I wanted freezing. to go home and we, I don't know why I couldn't go a half a block home before him but we walking we together and I would like you know gently walk and talk walk and talk <laughs> and he would just like they would just talk and schmooze at the corner once they got to the corner where they had yeah. to separate it would be another 20 minutes mm -hmm. he was a very friendly person right and, um, and he had a lot to say for himself Right. He, he could I even would, under stress, even under stress, very, very calm, and I think that's why people liked him. But he was very trustworthy. Ramesh Shashara always said that when he needed somebody that he can trust to be a representative, mm -hmm. and in those days there was a, a very, uh, there was a lot of things going on. Um, you know, there was the the break off between Degelatayra when Rav Shach, Shach created the party, right. he broke off from the Aguda. So before they broke off, they chose, both sides chose two people to try to make peace. One from Europe and one from America. And the one from America was my father. Mm. And he flew to Israel, and he worked there for about a week. And when he left, there was a Heskim in place. They had a contract that they would not break off. Everything was mm -hmm. in place. Um, and that's why he left. And he came home. And when um, they chose him, he probably said, like, why? Me? <laughs> why would they choose me? Yeah, why would they choose me? That was a constant thing. Like, Ramesh Sherry asked him to speak at a simcha. So he'd be like, yes. me? Like, why would he ask me? I'm Ramesh like, Sherry, when he made a family simcha, he had one MC, Rukhasko Basel Vashalem, and one speaker, my father. Uh -huh. At most, at many of their simchas. And every time my father said, me? I can't believe When they wanted to honor him. Speak. Me? So they chose him, and he, he, he was always, I can't believe it, me. By the time I entered, you know, teen, teenagehood, he was Benny Fischer, if he was a, a big name. Right. He still didn't hop that. Uh -huh. So, like, when he would say, like, why would they ask, why would they give me? She he never, you say, he never took himself seriously, Right, basically. no, he couldn't believe it. He'd be like me, and I would be like, because you're the guy now. <laughs> like, to myself, I'd be like, because who else should they do? And he just was always in shock. So he went to Israel, and he, 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 he made peace when he left. Wow. And I was at home when Rebellious Fez, that's how my Shashiva, called to speak to my father, to let him know that at the end of the day that they decided to split. But that was the, the level. But it wasn't just you know, things that nobody can do. It was in shul. It mm -hmm. was with friends. I, I see a lot of people when there's sometimes friction. People like to egg people on sometimes. There's certain geschmack out of <laughs> like, you know, making, you know, ooh, he hurt you this way, he hurt you that way. My father was always the center of, of, of gravity, the center of peace. And he, no matter what, from little to big, he was the one that made peace. And Always. He kept uh, everybody together. Always. They're a very interesting crowd, a Labadika crowd. And different he was the different one. types after the war, Hungarian and Polish, whatever. He was the, the, the glue. And when he saw somebody insulted or he saw whatever, he, he always right away jumped to, to be matzik the other person and to try to work it out. And, to try, and that's something like, you know, we all have to try to do and we mm -hmm. all try to do. Uh, he was successful at it, and um, I, I think there's a reason for it. I remember that there was a story with Rabbi Aaron Leibstein and Zetzal, and he was like 90 years old, and they say that uh, a certain a certain uh, shashiva 
a younger man, he asked him, he said, I don't understand. I, I speak more clear and I speak more vibrant and I'm a more powerful speaker and I prepare much more. You know, how, how come that when the Shashiva speaks, you know, it's so, it's so well uh, received. received and when I speak, it's like not. And if Shaman basically said, because you're preparing for an hour and I prepared for 90 years. <laughs> and, and so it wasn't just, you know, it's, when, when you're that person, then what you say, and when you really mean it, he put a lot, he made a lot of things happen that are on the high road and for lots of people. And that's how we had the reputation that people would even think to go to him. So the way that you live your life really allows other people to feel comfortable that you can help them with their issues with their problems and trust you. So when you say the same thing that maybe somebody else would say, they'll actually trust you and, right. and, and, and absorb it. it. It was one time that two people came in arguing over a small amount of money, and my father solved that case very easily. He just took the money out of his pocket and, <laughs> and he paid, paid it. <laughs> More than once. Uh-huh. That and was another way to solve problems. <laughs> he was very good at, at, at helping people because he really wanted to help people. He cared about helping people. Right. He enjoyed helping people. Loved he it. enjoyed it. Loved it, absolutely. There was nothing more yeah, important to him when a younger man would start off in business. We right. didn't get to that aspect of it. How right. many to stories help, I've heard. To help people get off the ground. Oh, Loved my it. gosh. He was, yeah, he was, was just You got a kick that. out of it, basically. There are Loved a couple it. of stories, I think, in the book, but there are so many stories. Mm-hmm. People came over to us. I would say since my father got sick, Kimat, there's not a week gone by. We're talking about now seven years. Kimat, not a week has gone by that somebody didn't come over to me Somewhere in the world, whether it's in Europe, in Israel, in, in, in the States, in Canada, wherever it is, in South America, in Japan, in Dubai, somebody mentioned to me how my father made them feel so good, how much they miss him. People I didn't even realize have shaykhs. Literally, a fellow from Dubai used to be, he's an Arab fellow, Muslim fellow, lived in London, was an electronics business. He called me up about a year and a half ago, I miss your father so much. Your father was such a gentleman. I came to America and he treated me. I was much younger than him. This guy is uh, today about 50. We're talking about maybe then he was 25 mm-hmm. at that time. And, uh, you know, not a Jewish fellow in the electronics business. He met with my father. My father offered him a ride to the airport. He said, I live in Queens anyway. I'll take you to the airport. Like he, said, he couldn't believe it. And then on the way to the airport, my father says, you know, let's, uh, maybe we could do some business. Or what would you, what would you propose? So he said, well, you're going to pay? So he says, if you ship the goods, of course I'll pay. You'll pay right away. And they, did, they ended up doing business. But mm-hmm. it wasn't the business. He was in love with my father. <laughs> a fellow from Paraguay, right? You know, Roberto Ugarte. Yeah. Nobody knows him. He's, a, he's not a Jewish fellow. A real gentleman happens to be a very well-bred fellow in Paraguay. My father was like a second father to him. We're talking about these kind of people, not Jewish. I have to tell you a story about a fellow around 1995. We, we had an office on 6th Avenue and 44th Street. I used to park in the garage. For many years, I parked a couple of blocks away because I actually, I leased a parking lot, and it was my parking lot, so I parked for free about three blocks away. Mm-hmm. Then my lease was up. I started parking in the garage next to the office where my father had gone for years. Anyway, I'm parking every day. One day, the, the fellow in the garage says to me, um, I had given my father a ride home the day before. He said, I, I see you with Mr. Fishoff. You know him? I said, it's, it's my father. He said, he's your father? He's my best friend. This fellow, a young... A, a parking attendant. A Mexican yeah. parking attendant in the garage. He's my best friend. I said, what do you mean he's your best friend? I went up to my father. My father had stopped taking a car to the office about six years before that. Mm. 
He used to park in the garage every day. Then he got a driver when he got remarried. After my mother passed away, he got remarried. He got a driver mostly for Sherry. And they used to drive him to the office. Mm -hmm. He was hardly in the garage. Mm -hmm. Five, six years later, this guy says, Mr. Fishoff is my best friend. Mm -hmm. I went upstairs to the office and said, what did you do to him that he thinks he's your best friend? Mm -hmm. My father says, I was always nice. Christmas time, I gave him a bottle of whiskey or something. <laughs> That's the effect that he had on well, people. When I went back to Florida, um, the guy behind the counter, his name is Benji. <laughs> and uh, he's from the Caribbean or something like that. And um, I told him, uh, you know, that my father's not well, and you know, I see him. We see him from time to time, and and he, my friends were with me. He started tearing up, like literally. And he said, I always felt so connected to him because you know, Benny, Benji, we have the same name, uh -huh. Ben. Uh -huh. And he started like giving a hespid about my father. And he's talking about the guy who works at the front desk. You walk out. We're in the carriage club. In the carriage club. Unbelievable. You walk out. Yeah. You walk in. You, say hello. You say hi. You right. say not. Everyone does that. Like, what, what happened? And he started saying, he says, your father was different than everybody else. And I'm hmm. like, and I was with my friends and with my son. I said, what? What? And he started, he said he loved everybody. He, 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 the way he looked at this guy, he felt a difference than, you know, it wasn't just like walking out and give the guy a tip or, or say goodnight, you know, coldly. He like just felt, he said, he cared about me. And he just knew that my father cared about him. And my father probably cared about him to the extent that if he probably went to my father and said, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm down on my luck and I need money, 5000 10000 my father probably would have given it to him because mm -hmm. my father really liked people. Right. And he liked people who most, even, even when they didn't deserve to be liked. And even people who hurt him in the past and they came to him again. <laughs> so many stories like that. And I'm like, and, I, and when we were there, it was like, Ooh. You know, like the last loan he didn't pay back. <laughs> Why are you doing it again? Doing it again. There are two things about that. First of all, when somebody new came to the office, even if my father just got hurt somehow in a business deal or a loan or anything, it was a clean slate. It's like my father never lent anybody money before in his life. Uh -huh. It was just like, Brent, this guy has a cheshman, he needs help, we're going to help him. There was no such thing as what he was worried about in the past. The second, uh, I forgot what I was going to say, the second Even point. the person himself didn't do it. Oh, that's the second thing. <laughs> yeah. We invested sometimes with, with certain people in real estate. When an investment went bad, a lot of different, my yeah. father in, insisted to invest with him again. He didn't want that person to feel bad that he lost the money for us. Wow. So he would reinvest the money with the that person, person again, just to make sure Chas Shalom, he shouldn't think that my father has some kind of time on him. Yeah, not the best business uh, um, acumen, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, it, but the Midas were absolutely no, it was overflowing with emotion. He was overflowing. With, with love for people. But he, he just wasn't, wanted to help. you know, uh, just to understand, he wasn't like um, this extremely emotional, loving, hugging, you know, mushy person no. in, in that thing. He just had it inside, internally wanted to help people as much as humanly possible and to be there for, for them. Um, you know, the story of a waitress. Oh, my gosh. I met that waitress. <laughs> Do you want to say that story? He was, a, he was in a Miami. There was a waitress there. Somehow, I don't remember the details. He found out that she was, she was a single mother and she was making a bar mitzvah. Anyway, he left her a small tip, I think $1,200. He gave her, he paid for a bar mitzvah. So as a postscript, um, I went with my wife to Miami two years ago in a different restaurant. And there was a woman there and uh, she, she's a, she's a guillerist. This, this, this woman, 
She looks like she's from, you know, from, from South America or from Mexico or something, and she was a guillaris. And I see this woman at a restaurant. She looks like she's a, she's a waitress, but she looks like she's wearing a shaito. I wasn't quite sure. And then I heard she went over to another table, and she was said a couple of Hebrew words. And I'm thinking, like, what are the odds? We're in Miami, right? I didn't hear from this woman for five years. I don't know mm -hmm. what happened to her. That restaurant closed up. There's millions of people in Miami. It must be dreaming. Anyway, sure enough, I come to pay the bill. She sees my name on the credit card. Fisher. She comes over to our table and she starts crying how she misses my father and how, how much she loved him. And she was so special. She thought about him every day and she davened for him when she was sick, when he, when he was sick. It was just... And it was that, it was that, it was it that, was that waitress. waitress. Just that mamish, one in, a, one in a million. She happened to, I just happened to get her table. And it's, it's just incredible the love that people had for him. But it's not only people like him. Did I got to tell you... Tip? Not that kind of thing. <laughs> I say a lovely, a lovely young lady. But there, when my father was sick, there's a young boy in Luxor who was roughly, at the time my father got sick, about seven or eight years old. He said to Hillen for my father every day. He's not related to us. But when my father used to walk home from shul, they had a home in the same section that we had. And my father would walk him home from shul. And he would talk to the boy, how's yeshiva and how's camp. And the boy said, I, I feel like he's my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And he davened for him every day, and a seven or eight-year-old boy for years was saying to him for my father. Mm. That's like one after the other. Every person he related to, I used to watch him, we used to watch him in Luxor. He gave out the lollipops to the, to the kids. The kid. Every kid he would enjoy, he would smile. If the kid said a cute line or a good excuse why he needed a second lollipop, you know, like, like he thought he was fooling my father. My father, just, he just loved every one of them. One of your father's expressions of his love and his passion, which I just wanted to address briefly, was his music. Oh, yes. He was, he was a very musical person. Right. He loved music. He composed music. Um, talk, talk about that, because I, I, I'm sure that music was, played a very prominent role in, in, in the Fischhoff home. Very much so, very much so. You could say you're the music And Rabavi is the, is the music he's maven, the music so. Well, he's much more musical, though he's being humble. <laughs> no. He's much more talented and much more musical. Um, but Actually, he's not a very honest person. So. <laughs> Take it with a grain of salt. No, we grew up with music. First of all, my father actually played piano for Schlemmer well, Let's go back to lunch. Let's go oh. back. We should go back to let's lunch. Go back to lunch. <clears throat> we'll start from Europe. Lunch, yeah. yeah. As, a, as a child, he... As he's, a child? He's saying... It's brought down in the book. Yeah. My grandfather, his father, Dove, Dove Baron, um, there was a, it was a local choir. And my father, even though they dominated in the Gerish Stiebel, but they signed my father up for a local choir. And in that choir... He taught the boy, they taught the boys how to read music. And, and that, read and write music. Read and write music, correct. And then when he was in Vilna with the Mojitz Rebbe, he had, had transcribed a lot, a lot of the of songs, Mojitz the Nagunim, the Mojitz Nagunim on notes, which we still have. Um, it's, uh, it's really very unique to have that. Mm -hmm. And he brought them over with him and he learned you know, the Mojitz Nagunim are not like short yeah, little they're, songs. They're complex. They're complex songs complex and he wrote out... Mm -hmm. all, all the Before Ben Sienchenker was Muzzard, right. so there was actually right. a Muzzard Sinagunim from the Rebbes, and my father wrote them out, and we used to practice them every year. And when we came to Nuschois, my father, no, we used to practice Rosh Hashanah, my father was about Philip also. He davened Yom Neroim. And only many years later, he found out that his family was killed actually on Yom Kippur, and he actually... Would, right, the book talks about, which, talk day, about yeah. right, which day he would keep uh, the yard right. And he was actually about Phila on Yom Kippur. Mm -hmm. Shachris. And we used to go Shachris. over the different Nuschois. He knew the difference between Agar and Nusuch and Satmar and Munkach and Mojitz. He davened mostly Mojitz and Nusuch. 
And that's how, that's how we grew up. But there was always singing in our house, reviewing mm -hmm. those nagunim and reviewing the, the, the nusach and reviewing all kinds of nagunim in our house whenever a new song came out. And we had a very good group in shul. We sing with harmonies. And, and my father was the central, mm -hmm. central man for everything. Right, he was the right, point right. man for, for everything, for all the practicing. And that's how we grew up. It was singing was a very big part of our lives. It's a different, a different quality. Um, people could sing, people can write notes, but to compose is a totally different part of your brain, right. totally different experience. And um, he wrote a lot of Nagunim. And um, what was incredible is that he wrote a Gerenigan, um, they call it Kelodin, which uh, when they sing it before Metzoyim Menucha on uh, the first night of Slichus, which is called uh, Kelodin. Mm -hmm. They sing it throughout the year for Shachar's Kelodin, and it's long. It's like 12, 13 minutes, five parts to it. Mm -hmm. You know, as they and they say, sing it in Ger? They, so they sing this Kelodin in Ger, they, it's, they say, as they say, Dustaf McKinnon. Like, you know, uh -huh. it's not just die, 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 die. <laughs> this, It's the way it starts, the way it ends. It's like really a symphony. Was it ever professionally recorded? So I, I did it, I, I worked on it for him, and I, I had a Garrett Choir come into me, into my studio that I used to have, a music studio. Right. And um, I surprised him with it, that I did the music, and I, I, had, a, I had the Garrett Choir come to this song that he really put together over, over many, many years. When did he start? It must have taken yeah. like 30, 40 years until he actually you know, completed this he whole... He put it all together, but mm -hmm. he had different files, different ideas here and there. Right. To him, it was a tremendous accomplishment, because in Ger, they have Ger composers. There was right, Uncle sure. Talmud, then there was Leibel Goldknopf, and there was Moshe Menachem Ehrenstein, right, so and they I, didn't allow outside people. They never right, allowed right, right, it. Right. So one time when Menachem Ehrenstein, who was Nifta recently, so a wonderful man, Absolutely. a sweet man, a very good, close friend of my father's. My father's very close with both um, Leibel Goldknopf who was the, the main Garrett composer, and Menachem Ehrenstein. Very Yabu Golkanov is the father of Yitzchak Golkanov today, the, 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 Knesset, 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 yeah. right. very close friend of the family. Yeah. Uh -huh. Golkanov, and their Bali Tvila and all of that, and Tzvi writes, writes the Nagunim in Ger. Now, but in those days, growing up was, was liable, and um, I used to go to their house for Kiddush, where we used to go all the time. Right. I, I don't even know how he became friendly with, I guess, when he used to go to Ger. And Through Ger. I don't know how and why certain people, but so mm -hmm. he was very close with both, both of these composers, and at that time, Reb Leibel was already Nifter, Tzvi, his son, was doing the Nagunim, together with Menachem Ehrenstein, who was a well-known composer. He, he made hundreds, maybe thousands of songs. He also had albums in Israel that weren't even Ger, he was a, and he was a very nice person. So I called him, I don't remember how I knew he was in America, and I arranged for him to come down to my music studio, and I played him my father's song, which I did the music for, and I had a Gera choir sing it. And he, he said, it's very, very nice. So I said, how about giving my father a gift that nobody in the world can give? <laughs> can you sing this in Ger? Now, uh -huh. I have to explain to you, like he said, there is no other Garrett composer. It's not like anybody comes up with a song. It was only... Um, no suggestions, no right. nothing. Right. right, so it was before the war, there was... Yankel um, Talmud. And then right. afterwards was Leibel Golknuf, and then afterwards was the son Tzvi, and Menachem partnered up. Mm -hmm. That was it. There were right. many, thousands and thousands of people writing songs. It's, it's closed. And um, he really had a lot of a type to my father. And also, it means giving up your spot, your, right. your, your, your legacy of composing a, a symphony. You Just know, to explain, every year they had new compositions. They had a list of compositions, like Tzoy Menucha, Kel Oden, Kel if it wasn't Chavez, and Zochreinu, uh, Kaddish. Each one had a different style, each one. Tzoy Menucha was the first song of the year. It's the same as Kel 
Right. But same as St. Kalona. But Mitzor Menucha was Slichas night. That mm -hmm. introduced all the New Year's Nagunim. Mm -hmm. The Rebbe stopped it a few years ago because there were so many Nagunim already. They didn't need to learn. They spent the hours and hours learning, learning the Nagunim. All the Hasidim, you're talking about 10, uh -huh. 20,000 people right. spending hours. The Rebbe decided he had enough for now. But mm -hmm. before that happened. Yeah, and in those days, yeah. they didn't really um, give out cassettes and tapes, recorders beforehand. So people would come and they would hear the song. Then they would learn it on Shabbos by Keladin, and they would learn the songs. And then by the time uh, after Sukkot, one of the great experiences of Ger is by then you hear like the certain parts that everybody catches onto, and it becomes mm -hmm. very haunting. Everybody hums and sings along with it, and they get to know the songs. And then they would release the the music on a cassette afterwards, and, uh -huh. but not before. So people didn't learn it; they would be listening to it and learning it as it learning was learning it on the spot. On well. the spot, and um, it ended up being that he he took he he liked it, and he went into the Ger Rebbe. And um, you can tell us why. And the Rebbe, the Rebbe, of course, he like my him. father. So he asked him, he said, he said can, I, can we use this niggin? So he said, is it a nice niggin? Uh -huh. So Menachem Einstein said, yes. So he said, okay. He got the <laughs> approval. And so said, who, who I, told your father the news? Because this probably made your father... Not, a, this was, a, this was like incredible. This was a highlight. He was there in, in order to show for Slichas that year. Touching he, went, he didn't go every year, but he uh -huh. was there that year. And he knew beforehand that they were going to sing yeah. it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh -huh. sure, sure, sure. Tav Shin Samach Gimel and Tav Shin Samach Vav. Again, they allowed also the same another thing. Another one, again. another niggin. Uh -huh. uh, separate, a uh, new niggin, Twice. also from its own, also a masterpiece. And for my father, he was in Poland before the war by the Emiramis. He was a little kid. He was up to 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, and he was there. And he saw the capella, he saw the choir singing by the Emiramis. And for him to be now, after Ger Hasidus and Polish Jewry was basically decimated, and to watch it regrow into thousands and thousands of people by the Rebbe Shlita, and to stand there while the, the new choir, you know, that big choir, maybe 30 strong, are singing his, his song. song. In front of 10,000 people. In front of 10,000 people. It's beyond. Incredible accomplishment. It, it, there's no words. I mean, I have chills, but for him, this was like, it, it was just unbelievable. It's not like he came from the, the music uh, Gara family or any <laughs> special whatever. He was just yeah. a regular guy, but he, he was so, in order for this to happen, first of all, you have to be a good musician. You have to mm -hmm. compose it. It has to be good. It really right. is a beautiful it, nigga. It's, it's beautiful. It's, yeah. Hard I'm curious, the, the you're right talking style. about the, these Nagunim. I, I mean, on one of your solid gold albums, you so recorded, that's story, right, you recorded Umi Baladecha, which your father composed. Right. But that was the only song that you really composed on any of the, uh, that you recorded on those albums from him. No, there was correct? another one also. Rahman. Oh, oh, Rahman. Oh, right. Rahman, a composer uh -huh. for one of my kids right. from our right. He wrote some right. regular songs also, mm -hmm. but Umi Baladecha is a very haunting story. Very haunting song story. that Mordechai and David sings on, on right. that album. Right. How he wrote it. Um, Salad Gold still available? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> still, yeah, so big Apple kid. Music. You want to tell the story how he wrote Umi Baladecha? No, you even So my mother was very not well. She was in the hospital for in and out for two years. And um, there was a Shabbos. He went to, he, we were there um, in the hospital. He was there in the hospital for Shabbos. And he went to Davin in, in the shul. And he started, what? Great story. No, it's a, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so he started davening, and when he got to these words, he just couldn't move on. Mm. And he just stood there saying these words, saying these words, and this melody just came to him with the words, and he, he just stayed there till the end of 
Next thing you realize, they, they were they were up the laning or something. I don't know. Yeah. He was totally in, in, in entranced. And he remembered it, which is also very hard. Right, hey, he remembered so this the, was a song that he wrote while my mother was, was really sick and mm -hmm. unfortunately passed away afterwards. And these words just like came from his core. So when I made my first album and I, I had all different people singing different songs, so I felt that it would be a, a nice tribute to him. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful song. And uh, the number one singer, of course, the king of Jewish music, I asked MBD to sing it sing my father's song and we have a video of it when I played it to him the first time where he heard it that was when you're into music and you compose music you have a feeling when it's sung when it's appreciated and it was a very very special moment when when MBD was singing it and when it was released and uh, we all sing it my, my son just walked down the chuppah to me almost all the grandchildren walked down walked to out that song right? it's a song at the chuppah and, and it's yeah. a good song it's a beautiful yeah, song beautiful. It's by the way the, the niggin that he did in Ger yeah. was recorded, uh, was done at a Hess concert years That's later. Right? Israel Lamb did a, oh, did a right? symphony arrangement on that niggin. They called well, it the Shoah Symphony. Nigen. The Shoah uh -huh. Symphony, right. right. And, he, and it was a full, um, in those days, orchestral, beautifully, you know, right. beautifully orchestra. Arranged. Wow. Beautifully arranged by Israel Lamb. And afterwards, we also had it sung by Mandy Werdiger to the tune of, to the words of Kalma Kaddish and Baruch Hashem Yaim Yaim. And Israel Lamb arranged it, actually. And uh, it's, it's... No, you arranged that it should be done. <laughs> oh, yes, I mean, sure. And uh, that's a big part of his life to have. It's, it's interesting how many different like, talents and qualities right. he had. Facets of his life that he had. Parts. Right. Yeah. yeah. We didn't sure. even cover all of them. Yeah, yeah, we didn't get to it. Listen, we only have a limited amount of time. But, the uh, first word there is dignity. Yeah. Oh, we got to the dignity, the generosity. No, we, we didn't even get the to the dignity. The <laughs> I don't think we got to the dignity. No, we we scratched travel. We used to travel with him to Japan. Well, we're hoping. Oh, he was yeah. so respected among the right. Japanese. Think about what this means. We, have, we didn't talk about his innovation, his creativity. Right. He was 16, 17 years old living in Shanghai, right? And that's when he developed it. That's where he learned English. He started getting some business acumen there because he was outside the ghetto somehow. And he, he made some connections in business just to survive. And then he came to America. So he got married when he was in 1949. He was 27. 28 years old, he went back to Japan to do business. Now think of a 27-year-old Jewish-Polish guy walking over to Panasonic and Sony, the giants, the giants of the world, and getting yeah. the uh, agency for almost every country in Latin America and the country in Israel. We got in the 60s, we were the agents for Israel for 30 years for Panasonic. Uh, 30 years, and because Pan the, the Japanese didn't want to deal directly with the Israelis, mm -hmm. so we had an office in Japan. But his you know, he was so respected among him. the Japanese. And he spoke at Sony. They honored him when, when the, when the president of, of mm -hmm. Iowa retired from Sony. My father spoke at the dinner. We were invited to Sony or Panasonic family get-togethers, wow. just like Panasonic family, because they, he was so respected, so respected among all the people that we did business with. He spoke languages. What's amazing is that he didn't speak like a Poli with a Polish, Polish accent. Mm -hmm. uh, he had a very distinguished American, a little bit European-like accent, but um, reading, writing, you know, in English fluently. He spoke Japanese and Portuguese mm -hmm. and Spanish, French, <laughs> Italian. He lived in Italy for, for a few months after they got married, my parents. It, it, it's an unbelievable life story. Like you said, we only scratched the surface. Right. There's, mu there's much more to discuss. But before we wrap up, any final thought that you want to leave the viewers with? People are going to read the book. Both people who knew your father, thought they knew your father, people who don't know your father yet, but we'll get to know him through this book. Any final thoughts? I think I could, uh, I could repeat an email I just got three days ago from somebody from Eretz Yisrael, Rosh Hashiva, actually, who was, uh, had a Tells a connection. My father learned in Tells. 
So, and he wrote, he just asked me, you know, he was thinking about my father. I didn't, uh, he's one of these people that I didn't realize he felt so close to my father, but he did. And he was telling me, you know, it would be nice to put out a book about your father. And I said, actually, it's coming out this week. We're putting out a book. He said, I'm so excited. I can't wait to buy it because your father is not somebody that was so different or like you write a book about a Rosh Hashiva. You have to be a Rosh Hashiva to live like that. My father was a regular person who worked himself up, right. who, who lived his life in a certain way with a certain ahava, with dignity, with the wisdom, with the, with the caring about and the love for people, that he's something that everybody can relate to. He's someone right. that some, everyone can relate to. So I think it's going to be a very good lesson for people just how to conduct your life sure. with was, honesty told, and integrity. I told someone there's a handbook on how to be a match. That's what, that's what this book, among many other is. things. Yeah. It's a handbook for Askonis. It's a handbook for Adabi Yenayvid Hashem. The things but, he but, built, Agudis Yisrael, and, his, and yeah. his, his creativity and his vision for the future. We mm -hmm. didn't, unfortunately, we didn't, we didn't touch on that. But right. When Miri Yeshiva came to America, Reb Nosen Tzvi just took over. When Rabbeinish was Nifta Zatzal, Nosen Tzvi Yartai was last week. The first visit, of course, they came to my father. My father said, don't go to my generation. My generation is already stretched out. We are building, you know, we've been building yeshivas and everything in America. Go to the young generation. He encouraged me to get involved. He encouraged them to go to the alumni. Basically, he encouraged, he taught them the idea of starting mm -hmm. an alumni association, association in America. He's the president for the alumni. Right. <laughs> Whatever. But he, it, was, it was his vision. Everything he was thinking about the future, future generations, when he went to Gare, he had such nachas watching the, the growth of the what new generation. The, the 20 boxes. Of what? That's all. Oh, that, that was his idea about building a building. Go ahead, yeah, tell him. Yeah, well, basically, that's it. What was it? What was it? <laughs> no, he needed a new building, so they had to raise a million dollars. So my father said, the way you do it is not, that I don't want one person to be involved. You want to have 20 supporters. Go to each person. And each person should get fifty thousand dollars. You put uh -huh. their name on a plaque. So you break I'll give it you down. the I'll give you the first fifty thousand. Mm -hmm. Rabbi Yomit Kabach Shlita and Eretz Yisrael tells me this was our first visit to America. We didn't know how to ask for money. We didn't know what we we're going to do for money. We didn't know anything. Your father put us. You know, he lifted us up on a pedestal, and he said to he said to Rosh Shiva, "Don't be shy about going to Miri Shiva. You're collecting for a good thing. Miri Shiva is a huge thing. Everybody should have the schus to be part of the Miri Shiva." Mm. He changed their attitude. He gave them such chizuk, just just because he loved people. It's truly exceptional, Reb Avi, Reb Dovi. Thank you for coming down. I know thank I know it's a, somewhat us. of an inconvenience to come down, pleasure. But but for this book and for your father and for every. For, really, for everyone who's going to learn so, so much from his life story, I thank you for sharing it. And, I hope it'll uh, be a big schos for him. And he should be, I give you a bra, he should be a melitz yasher for both of you, for your families, Amen. for your siblings, we didn't mention your sisters, and, 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 and the, really the extended Fishel family. Again, we have to thank Shirley Besser for doing such yeah, a beautiful job. And again, thank job. you to him for, for a beautiful And the name, book. Yahava Benny, is my father's, this is my father's gift to today's generation. I think it's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you.